Open your Bibles, if you will, to the 18th chapter of Second Chronicles. We're going to continue that chapter in verse 17, as far as verse 27. Second Chronicles 18, verses 17 to 27. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven, standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we know that even as we meet tonight, what we see in this passage is true, that you are sitting on your throne in heaven above, and you are disposing of the affairs of men. Father, we pray your mercy, though we are sinners, that mercy which will enable us to hunger and thirst for your word, to receive it in faith, for we know then that we will be saved that word bearing your message of grace. Give us wisdom in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. During the years of England's Great Awakening in the 18th century, a man named Lord Bolingbroke was an avid follower of the great evangelist George Whitfield, all the while remaining a notorious unbeliever. On one occasion, a Wesleyan minister came to visit Bolingbroke and found him reading John Calvin's famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And Bolingbroke greeted the pastor. You have caught me reading John Calvin. He was indeed a man of great parts, profound sense, and vast learning. He handles the doctrines of grace in a very masterly manner. Well, being opposed to Calvin's doctrine, the Wesleyan minister expressed disapproval. But, but Bolingbroke countered that he was surprised that a man devoted to the Bible would object to Calvin's doctrine. Here's what he said. These doctrines are certainly the doctrines of the Bible, and if I believe the Bible, I must believe them. The problem with Bolingbroke then, however, was that while he could discern biblical truth, it did not matter to him what the Bible said. 
He was so devoted to his profligate manner of life that even knowing the teaching of God's word, including its doctrine of divine judgment and eternal punishment, all of that had no impact on him. Well, Lord Bolingbroke would have found a kindred spirit in King Ahab of Israel. The opening section of Second Chronicles 18 shows Ahab appealing to false prophets to give support to his military plans. At the request of Judah's godly king Jehoshaphat, he summoned a man who he knows was a true prophet. When Micaiah, that prophet, mimics the false prophets, assuring Ahab that there will be triumph from the Lord, the king knows that he's toying with him. Perhaps Micaiah had spoken the word sarcastically. I suspect he may have. But in any case, Ahab objected, demanding that the prophet speak nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord. So, so Micaiah did. He proceeded to tell the Lord's truth, that Ahab was going to be slain if he went to this battle. But this truth, which Ahab apparently understood really was from the Lord, had no more impact on his behavior and decisions than Calvin's theology had on Lord Bolingbroke. Ahab still had every intention of carrying on with his campaign and his plans. Dale Ralph Davis comments, Ahab had come to the point where it doesn't matter whether or not Micaiah speaks the truth, whether he speaks falsehood, whether he speaks gobbledygook. The word of the Lord is now an irrelevance for him. Well, in light of Ahab's attitude to God's word, we might reasonably ask why he should still be told it. Now that question, it turns out, occurred to the Lord himself, as Micaiah goes on to explain. In fact, Ahab reveals by what happens that he is already under God's judgment. He's not merely awaiting judgment, he is presently under judgment. Look at verse 22, the Lord has declared disaster concerning you. And long before the military disaster, which happens at the end of the chapter, long before that happens at Ramoth-Gilead, a spiritual disaster had already been inflicted by God in the form of a lying spirit in the mouths of his false prophets. Verse 21. Well, this example shows that a far greater judgment even than death in battle occurs when the Lord in his wrath removes the capacity of a hardened sinner to hear and believe the message of God's word. Well, I suppose it might have been out of curiosity that Ahab demanded to know what God had really told Micaiah. Or, or perhaps, I suspect this too, that this back and forth was a long-standing contest of wills between the false king and the true prophet. They seem to have a history. Now, in any case, what Micaiah said is in response to him is very informative to us. He tells us that he had been admitted in the form of a vision into the very throne room of God to hear the Lord's counsel on the affairs in Ahab's court. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, verse 18, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. Now that kind of prophetic vision is hardly unique to Micaiah. It occurred to many other prophets as well. You think of the prophet Isaiah, who received his commission to be a prophet in that vision of Isaiah 6, when he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now visions like this of God's throne room tended to occur during times of national crisis. 
You'll see that in Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, 9 to 4 as well. Isaiah saw his vision when he stumbled, as it were, in dismay into the temple because godly King Uzziah, who had reigned for 52 years, had now died and he wondered what was going to happen to Israel. Who would sit upon the throne? And the purpose of the vision was to show him the one who had always been sitting on the throne. Contrary to Isaiah's fears, the throne was not vacant. The Lord was on his throne as he ever had been, as he ever would be. Well, Micaiah's vision of the Lord and throne, surrounded by his host of angels, makes a similar point in the time of wicked King Ahab. Now, there's an intended irony here. There's a comparison with what is happening below and then the true sovereignty that's being exercised above. Down in Ahab's capital city, by the gate, these two human rulers sat on their thrones together in all that earthly splendor to determine the fate of their nations. But all the while, their affairs were truly being decided at the heavenly throne, where God alone ruled, from which he sent his word. Now this vision then makes one of the main points the chronicler wants to convey to his own generation. Centuries, this is probably early 5th century B.C., 475. We're going to give that date, although we're not sure. But centuries then, after Ahab and Jehoshaphat had lived and died, the Jewish people had returned from their 70 years of exile in Babylon to the ruined city of Jerusalem. That's what was going on in the Chronicles' own time. How much had changed since the days of Jehoshaphat and Ahab? God's people now were under the political domination of imperial Persia. They were laboring to reconstruct a city that no longer even possessed a wall. Nehemiah would soon take care of that. And there was no king there to sit on the throne. How, how much has changed except that nothing really had changed. That's his point. Nothing ultimately had actually changed. The sovereign Lord who had revealed himself to Micaiah was still enthroned above. And he was surrounded by forces more than adequate to place his every decision into effect. You see, the true issue in Ahab's time was not whether or not the rulers themselves and the people would respond obediently to God's word, or rather that was the issue. It was not what was going on geopolitically, that was the issue. Will they hear God's word? Will they believe God's word? Will they respond obediently? That was the only serious issue. The same was true in the time of the chronicler when he records this earlier episode. If the Restoration Jews would only turn their hearts, one of his great themes is seek the Lord. Remember, we saw that in Asa. If you will seek the Lord with all your heart, it said over and over, if they will do that, if they will believe God's word, if they will obey as they are taught, well, but the Lord was more than able to save them, to prosper them. He was seated on the throne of heaven. Now, that same reality remains true today as we now read and study Second Chronicles. I know that cultural elites and political dominions will respond as they like to the witness of God's people to his word. But the fate of the church does not lie in the hands of earthly rulers. And Jesus once wrote to his beleaguered church in the city of Smyrna, and he pointed out that in that city they were being opposed directly by the powers of Satan, Revelation 2.9. And yet he said what mattered was simply the believer's obedient response to God's word. Here's what Jesus urged them. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
Satan's doing the terrible things he wants to do. The world is doing his things. But I will give you the crown of life. That's what will happen if you are faithful to me. Now, that's true in every generation. God's people have this confidence, knowing that the sovereign reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, seated with the Father on heaven, is greater than all the powers the world may pit against us. The way for Christians today to prevail and conquer is the same as in the time of the chronicler and the time of the prophet Micaiah and Jehoshaphat. Namely, that we remain focused on what God is doing according to his word and that we would respond to it through prayer and a zealous zealous performance of his gospel will. Well, to all appearances, the prophet Micaiah was a rather marginal player in the court of mighty King Ahab. He didn't enjoy the ruler's favor. It seems he spent much of his time in and out of jail. Yet in reality, he had been in the councils of the Lord. He alone knew what was really taking place by God's design. Indeed, as one who'd been admitted to God's confidence, he was himself a, a player in the work of God and the plans and purpose of the Most High. The same is true of Christians today who know their Bibles. The world does not know what's going on, but the Christian does. The Christian understands Christ's purpose for our age. We find that purpose in the Great Commission where Jesus deploys his people to spread the gospel in order to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to teach them to observe all that he has commanded. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. And don't forget how Jesus prefaced that Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We are shown him on his throne above as he tells us, Not what the world thinks is going on, but what is really going on, namely the spread of the gospel. You see, if we understand that purpose and commit ourselves to that gospel commission, while all the world believes it, it believes that history is about the rising and falling of one empire or another, but faithful Christians will be busy performing the witness that actually is God's sovereign purpose for our times. Well, in his vision of God's heavenly counsel, Micaiah learned that the events unfolding in Ahab's court were being orchestrated by the Lord for the purpose of destroying the unbelieving king. Andrew Hill points out that while such visions, these kinds of visions, often show the Lord planning deliverance for his people, in this case, the council plots the death of Ahab and the military defeat of the combined armies of Israel and Judah. He knows that. Now we're reminded of Psalm 2, which marvels at how the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And the psalmist notes how the one who sits in heaven laughs. He holds these puny courts in derision, Psalm 2, 1-4. to Now, in writing that psalm, David could have been commenting in advance on Ahab's situation. We've noted how Ahab was simply not interested in what God had to say, apart from maybe some idle curiosity. In response, we then discover that the Lord intended to make sure that he remained ignorant. He was going to do so by filling his counsel with Ahab's counsel with falsehood and error. 
Having seen the Lord enthroned in heaven, Micaiah continues in verse 19, And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? Micaiah told Ahab that the Lord had declared disaster concerning you, verse 22. And God would work this disaster through the false prophets, the very false prophets, by which Ahab had sought to circumvent the influence of the very God who was about to destroy him. Now the narrative that continues has perplexed commentators. It goes like this, and the Lord had asked angels for a volunteer to entice Ahab into error, into fatal error, and we're told some various suggestions were made. And then one angel, verse 20, came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. Well, the Lord asked what this angel had in mind. He answered, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Verse 21. God approved the suggestion, you are to entice him, and you shall exceed, go out and do so, verse 21. Now, Micaiah tells Ahab of all this, and he concludes in verse 22, now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets, the Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Now, one question, one question commentators ask is how a holy angel could be sent on a mission that involved lying. Now, the answer given by uh, most of the older Reformed commentators, many today, was it must have been an evil angel, one who normally was in service of Satan and who had performed, volunteered to perform this little bit of wickedness on the Lord's behalf. Matthew Henry points out that the devil is called a liar in John 8.44. He remembers how in Job chapter 1, remember Job 1, how the Lord at least permitted the Satan to go on a similarly wicked mission. Andrew Stewart takes the same tack. He insists that it simply is not acceptable to understand that one of God's holy angels could perform so unholy a task. And so he writes, the best way of understanding this passage seems to be that one of the fallen angels put this suggestion to God. Now, if that is the case, then Micaiah's vision provides an example of how God is himself holy and yet is sovereign over even the wicked deeds of men and angels. Cyril Barber writes, Everything in heaven and earth and even things under the earth are under God's control, and if he so desires, he can use evil to accomplish his holy purpose. Well, that is true. We think of Joseph and his brothers. The Lord ordained the wicked deeds by which Joseph's brothers arranged for him to be sold into slavery, that he would go down and change to Egypt. Why? Because God was going to use Joseph in Egypt to deliver the covenant people. Now, something like that would be argued here. The Lord permitted this wicked angel to become a lying spirit in the mouths of Ahab's false prophets for the holy purpose of bringing judgment to the wicked and thus saving the godly. Under that view, what Joseph said of his brothers would be true of this whole event. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50, verse 20. Let me say, however, that I am not persuaded by that reasoning. That is the reasoning that demands that it must have been an evil angel who went forth from God on this occasion. For one thing, the reality is that God did not deceive Ahab at all since he, at the same time, had commissioned the true prophet Micaiah to inform the king exactly of everything that he was doing. 
Ahab expected his false prophets to prophesy falsely. That's what he paid them to do. Uh, but then it's also true, though, that uh, he uh, he had no idea at the same time that God was 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 working through that evil that that lying spirit that angel that came. He had no idea about that until Micaiah let him in on the secret, and so he did know what was going on in the mouths of his false prophets. And God's purpose was to destroy Ahab in the upcoming battle. And Micaiah told him so. To achieve that result, the angel had enticed Ahab by putting a lying spirit into the false prophet's mouth. Micaiah told him that too. Micaiah told the evil king everything that God had said in advance, how it all had been arranged in heaven. I would argue it would be very difficult, given that evidence, to render a conviction of false witness against God or any of his servants. Darrell Davis explains that the Lord cannot be charged with deception when he clearly tells Ahab about the deception by which he is deceiving him. Now, what then was the purpose of deceiving Ahab if God commissioned Micaiah all along, alongside the deceiving angel, to tell the king exactly what was happening? Well, one answer was that the Lord's point was not merely to destroy Israel's apostate king, but also to make it perfectly clear why he was destroying him. That's what's going on here. Martin Selman writes, this judgment was God's response to Ahab's trust in false gods. It was a condemnation of his idolatry. Gordon McConville adds that the whole reign of Ahab is a falsehood. And so God condemned him by means of falsehoods that Ahab himself had approved. Now let me remind you that at any time Ahab could have been saved. By believing God's revealed word, by repenting of his sin, by calling on the Lord for mercy in true faith. But you see, it is precisely because he would not do this that the Lord judged him by afflicting him with an enticement to believe lying spirits. You see, far from such a strategy involving the Lord and sins that are unworthy of his holy nature, this punishment was a suitable judgment on Ahab's long-settled practice of indifference to God's word. It's for this reason that I'm unpersuaded that a holy angel uh, uh, may not have offered or carried this strategy of deceit. It was a suitable and holy response of wrath to, uh, to Ahab's obstinate determination to reject all truth. Now, you might be thinking at this point that this is pretty much an academic discussion, And if you think that, then you need to realize that the New Testament teaches that in the final age of this world, when great tribulation falls on earth prior to Jesus' return, something similar to Ahab's judgment will befall the entire generation of idolatrous human beings. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, Paul describes the future coming of the man of lawlessness, who will lead the world in rebellion through an apostate church. And Paul goes on and says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10. 
Now, in these future days, the spiritual heirs of Ahab, who refuse to love the truth and so be saved, are subjected, we're told, to an evil deception. But Paul goes on and he says, furthermore, God sends them a strong delusion. God deludes them that they may not believe, that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but who had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now here again, it is the Lord whose counsel stands behind the delusion of unbelievers who have delighted in ungodliness. I would suggest that since God delivered that kind of judgment of delusion in Ahab's time, and further that we are told that he will do it again at the end of this age, we should assume that this danger exists today. The same outpouring of divine wrath through the judgment of delusion. And we tend to think that when God judges a nation or a community, it means they'll be afflicted with disease, there'll be a military defeat, there will be an economic downturn. But my friends, a far more severe judgment and one with more deadly implications occurs when God judges his enemies through a spirit of delusion in which the publicly proclaimed message of God's word is held in disregard. There can hardly be, in fact, eternally considered a more dreadful judgment than a spirit to to believe what is false and a refusal to believe what is true. I would say it's hard to deny that something at least like that delusion seems to have beset the once-believing nations of the post-Christian West. If so, it foretells society-wide death through a judgment that that exposes a callous disregard for truth in pursuit of pleasure through unrighteousness, unless there should be repentance and a renewal of faith in Christ. Well, there's little doubt, I think, that the cultures of the Western nations have been subjected to such a delusion, whether or not it has been given as a specific judgment from the Lord. Without a spirit of delusion, it's hard to explain the obvious absurdities of a fallen culture that insists, for instance, that biological boys can be girls, biological girls can be boys, and that an enlightened society must impose this gender confusion on its children. Given the delusion of pagan society in its hardened rejection, that's not happening on its own. It's a hardened rejection of God, the creator, of the truth of God's word. And given that, then the example of Micaiah in the court of Ahab will have much to say to us, will it not? As we now stand in the throne room of conventional public opinion in the very feet, in the very shoes of the prophet Micaiah. Well, if Christians today occupy Micaiah's place, we can expect to be ridiculed by the very false prophet whose absurdities are leading the culture to ruin. And we see this, that when Micaiah told Ahab that his prophet spoke by lying spirits, one of those false prophets approached him. Verse 23, Zedekiah the son of Chenaanah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, which way did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Now a slap in the face was a form of gross insult in those days. Being deluded, this chief false prophet felt indignation towards the true prophet, and so he justified his physical and public abuse and his mocking response. 
And I hope we're reminded of a similar scene when the Lord Jesus was summoned before the deluded judges of the Jewish court on the night of his arrest. Do you remember what happened? They accused Jesus of blasphemy for revealing himself as the Christ. And they spit in his face. They struck him. Some of the priests slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who was it who struck you? Matthew 26, 67 to 68. And Jesus forewarned his disciples, a servant, he said, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also have kept yours. John fifteen twenty. Now Isaiah had foretold in Isaiah 50, verse 6, that Jesus would not shrink back from this abuse, just as we today must not be deterred by public shaming, by cancel culture, by disgrace for, for the sake of God's truth. Isaiah foretold of Jesus, and in him of us, I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. Well, not only did Micaiah receive insults from the false prophets of Ahab's idolatry, but the, the king himself ordered his persecution. Verses 25 and 26, the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah, take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. Say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison. Feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. Verses 25 and 26. You see, the true prophet was a threat to the morale of the doomed army. They are about to march out to their destruction. The last thing they needed was a true prophet of the Lord telling them that. That is, if one need do this. And the same thing would later be done to Jeremiah. And for the same reason, Jesus foretold all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. John fifteen twenty one. Well, Micaiah responded with words of warning to both Zedekiah and to Ahab. He answered the false prophet in verse 24, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. In other words, after Ahab had been defeated, this boastful deceiver would be found hiding in his dismay, only then it would be too late. God's word having become clear after he was doomed. He gave a similar message to King Micaiah. The king said, keep him in jail until I return in peace. He answered, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. Verse 27, you you see, here is the test that every true prophet was willing to accept. The truth of his prophecy would be proved when the claims that he made had come true. As Micaiah is being dragged away to his cell, he offers one last warning to all. Hear all you peoples, verse 27. Matthew Henry observes the hard case of faithful ministers whose lot it has often been to be hated and persecuted and ill-treated for being true to their God and just and kind to the souls of men. Micaiah, for discharging a good conscience, was buffeted, imprisoned, condemned to the bread and water of affliction. But he could with assurance appeal to the issue as all those may do who are persecuted for their faithfulness. Well, Christians today have an advantage over Micaiah in this, that we bear testimony and are proved not by an event that will come true in the future, but our testimony to an event that has already come true in the past 
a single great event that proves the truthfulness of our gospel. We bear testimony to the truth of Jesus' resurrection after he had died on the cross to bear the sins of his people. And while the power of sin continues in its deluding spirit so that so many people refuse to believe, we go on proclaiming the gospel on behalf of a Savior who has ascended to that very throne scene that Micaiah was shown. He is seated right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Hear all you people, said Micaiah in his last recorded words. Well, Jesus explained our mission and our message on the brink of his departure for heaven. In Luke 24, he said this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day he should rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Well, here's the question. Can our witness overcome the power of delusion in a world judged for its unbelief? Well, Jesus said that it would. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Verse 29, completing the previous charge. Now, he was referring to the Holy Spirit who would bear testimony with with and through our witness to the truth. You see, the day of mercy had ended when King Ahab had, had, had turned away from the Lord, and it was in judgment for him that God sent a lying spirit to go into the mouths of the false prophets. But here's the good news, that God is still showing mercy to sinners today. And so he sends not a lying spirit, he sends the Holy Spirit of truth to bear testimony to hearts when our message of the gospel is sounded. Never forget, as you're telling people about Jesus, that Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit to attend to that witness. Micaiah was proved true when his message of defeat was fulfilled in the destruction of Ahab's army. We'll see that in the next passage. Christ's message is proved true today when sinners believe the gospel and are saved. And Jesus promised to all his faithful witnesses, that yes, so that we are insulted and persecuted perhaps, like the prophet Micaiah of old, he gave us this promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Acts 1 verse 8. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being broadened into your confidence through the teaching of your word. Father, we thank you that you show us that you are really reigning sovereignly over all the affairs of heaven and earth. Father, help us then to receive faithfully not only the gospel message of our own salvation, but the commission you have given us to shed that gospel near and far in evangelism and missions. And Father, what a great encouragement it is that you are still showing mercy. The day of universal delusion has not come. Oh, Father, send your spirit. Even have mercy on our nation and land, this wicked generation, we pray. Oh, remove the spirit of delusion. Send the spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth, the spirit who gives life by the miracle of faith. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.